Microlensing Your Brain with George Bendo, India Leclerc, Mark Herbert, and Joe Zanz. The Jodcast, April 2014 Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio today are George and Mark. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Uh, first off, we'd just like to mention that uh, a lot of you got our April Fool's Jodcast last month. Uh, we have wrestled control back from the robots, and uh, you're back to your usual human presenters this time, and hopefully for uh, the foreseeable future, but we can't rule out another uh, scripted attack. From... Well, no one said they preferred uh, us to the robots, so... This is true. We haven't had that many messages in support for humans, so, call, <laughs> so I think if we get a bit lazy, we might just... Tell the robots to come back. <laughs> uh, in the show this time, we talked to Professor Carol Mundell about the transient explosive universe, and Dr. Joe Zunz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Mark interviews Dr. Libby Jones in this month's Job Bite. For this month's Job Bite, I've turned the tables on one of our own Jobcasters. It's Dr. Libby Jones. Welcome to the other side of the microphone. Hello. It's very strange being on this side, I have to say, being interviewed. So you're now a postdoctoral researcher and you work on evolved stars. So can you tell us a bit about what you do at the moment? Yeah, so my research is focused mainly on dusty old stars as part of a larger project called SAGE, which stands for Surveying the Agents of Galactic Evolution. Oh, can I call you an agent of galactic evolution? That does sound pretty awesome. <laughs> and as part, this is a, this a larger project to try and quantify how a galaxy evolves over time. And the best way to do this, instead of looking at our own galaxy, where we can't get an overall picture, is to look at galaxies in our local groups and nearby galaxies. So what is it that stops us in our own galaxy from getting a good picture of what's there? Well, as we're part of our own galaxy, we can't see the whole thing, so we can only see what's close to us on this side of the galaxy. There's dust in the way, so you can't see to the very far side. There's also confusion issues with lots of objects, and also we don't know the distances to everything which is a very limiting factor if you want to know how bright something is. So if you're looking at a faraway galaxy, you can sort of assume this is all almost exactly the same distance. Yes, that's exactly what we do. We take different galaxies, we say every single star is at the same distance, and we say they all have the same metallicity. And by metallicity here, I'm talking about the astronomer use of metallicity. It means anything that's not hydrogen or helium. So by looking at these different galaxies at different metallicities, it gives us an idea of how our own galaxy evolved, because at lower metallicities, it pros in an earlier stage of the evolution of our galaxy. So why do you use the older stars to do this specifically and the dusty ones? Well, the, the idea of the whole project was to quantify all the dust production and sources of dust extraction in a galaxy. So actually the reason why I look at the, the older dusty stars is that what produces a dust, for example. So it's the kind of the opposite to a lifetime of a star. So instead of stars being born and then dying, and you think in that terms of evolution. The older stars are what produce the dust, and that gets emitted into the interstellar medium where it stays for a while, and then the new generation of stars destroys the dust. So that's why I've been very interested in what the dust impact in and mineralogy into the interstellar medium has been. The end of the life of a star is more like the beginning of yeah. the next generation. The, yeah, the end of the lifetime of a star is the beginning of the life cycle of dust of that cycle and it continues and it keeps going through loads of stages of these cycles and that causes the evolution of a galaxy, the and chemical evolution of a galaxy. And how does that, or why does that change the metallicity? 
So initially, at the, the Big Bang, you had hydrogen, helium, and a bit of lithium. And then the first stars form, and they were quite big, and then the nuclear synthesis inside the star forms heavier elements, which then, as the star dies, gets released out. Then the next generation of stars takes those elements, and then, as it keeps going through the cycle, more and more elements get produced. So it increases the numbers and abundances. And when you talked about dust extraction, what does that mean? Is it being extracted from a star or extracted from the galaxy itself? Stars, in terms of the evolved stars, produce the dust. They form it. It doesn't exist beforehand. Um, So in evolved stars, um, they're very, very cool. Um, They're very big. Um, But this, they're cool and big, and they've got some very interesting chemistry going on molecules can condense out from being in the gas and then that from molecules goes into forming dust as a function of temperature as you go away from the star. So that's how it's produced. And then by extraction I mean sort of, this is in around young stars, as they form the dust actually reprocesses all the light it needs to take away all the energy and then it's destroyed at that stage. So that's what I mean by dust extraction at the end of um, the sequence of a dust life. And so when you're looking at all these different molecules and things, how are you determining what's actually there and what sort of cycles it's going through? Well, the way a star is, um, especially evolved stars, by evolved stars I'm talking to low to intermediate mass stars. So these are stars like our sun, for instance, will go through this stage where it will expand. Um, Now initially, the composition in a star reflects the composition of the material, what it formed out of. So in most cases, a star is oxygen-rich. So an evolved star is either oxygen-rich or carbon-rich. And this is because the CO molecule forms first. It's very, very stable. So either if you have more oxygen than carbon, or the carbon is locked up in the CO, and so you have all oxygen-rich chemistry. And if you have more carbon than oxygen, then all the oxygen is gone, so then you have loads of carbonaceous chemistry going on in these dust around the stars. And my main focus has been on oxygen-rich um, evolved stars. So is there lots of modelling involved because you're talking about the chemistry of it so presumably that's chemistry that we think we can try and understand. Yeah so the best way to go about this is to actually have um, spectra so I've used a space telescope called Spitzer which um, has very nice detailed spectra from 5 to 35 microns in the mid-infrared. Now this is where a lot of dust particles have very nice distinct features so one of the main molecules and dust is silicates. Now silicates if you think about it, are actually very tiny, wispy particles of sand around these stars. So imagine a star, it's got this, this sort of smoky, wispy, sandy envelope around it. Um, silicates are made of silicon and oxygen, and they have these SIO stretching and bending modes in their lattice, and these produce either broad features in terms of if, the, if it's a sort of a sandy, uh, amorphous composition, so it's a bit of irregular dust. Or in terms of crystalline silicates, these are very ordered lattice structures and these cause these very sharp spikes. And from them you can work out exactly what the material is made out of, how much of it there is, its temperature and its size and its shape. The best way to interpret that is by using the thing called radiative transfer models, which is um, some computer programs that use um, lab-based spectra that people have measured for all these different type of things and then we put it around a star and we try and compare the observations to the models to give us a very good idea of exactly what's going on but actually if you just take a quick look at the spectra and you see a a sharp spike there you know particularly what kind of material it is quite quickly. 
Wow, so it's quite a complex environment. And when you were studying it in your PhD and now, and comparing to models and things, what did you discover about these stars and about the evolution of galaxies? So I've been particularly looking at the condensation of this dust and what it's what particularly it's made out of. So in terms of um, the dusty stars that are oxygen rich, you'd first expect alumina. Amorphous alumina is irregular sapphire, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, uh, some of it can actually be sapphires in certain lattice structures. Uh, and then you get your silicates, which is all your sandy uh, material. And then after that, you get your iron that condenses out. So actually, it's a temperature process. And I was looking a lot at the different ratios of these. And I noticed that in the LMC, which is approximately half the metallicity of our own galaxy. We better say what that stands for. Oh, yes. The Large Magellanic Cloud. Your favourite galaxy. It's, it's one of my favourite galaxies. <laughs> I have. I love the Magellanic Clouds, so they're, they're my favourite. So it's another galaxy, but it's, it's pretty nearby. Yeah, it's um, 50 kiloparsecs away. So let's put that into light years. That's... 150,000-ish? 175,000 yeah. light years? Yeah, 150,000 light years away. Now, very interestingly, I noticed quite quickly that compared to our own galaxy, a lot of lumina was missing from these stars. But if they condense out first, where's all that lumina gone? And actually, it took me quite a long time to find out that it was actually only a mite. It was about 20% of the dust is in alumina. Most of it's silicates and this sandy-type material. So that's one of the major discoveries. I also found, as you go back towards the early universe in terms of the metals that are present, the composition of the, the silicate dust also changes. So from being having lots of excess uh, oxygens in terms of phosphorite, which we see in the Milky Way, now phosphorite is a nice greeny type material. In fact, if you go to Hawaii ever, there is some olivine beaches of which phosphorite is there on the sand. You can see it, and I, I really want to go to Hawaii at some point to see that. Yeah. And so that's what we see a lot around the stars in our own galaxy, but as you go towards the Magellanic Clouds, then to the small Magellanic Cloud, which is a, a lot lower metallicity, this phosphorite actually changes into enstatite. So you see that, but you don't see any phosphorite, and that's to do with the difference in oxygen in the, in the silicate materials. And actually that tells us a lot more about the different condensation of this dust and how it's input into the interstellar medium. So the Magellanic Clouds are, in a sense, less evolved than our own galaxy. Yeah, so the the Large Magellanic Cloud has approximately half the metallicity of our own galaxy. That corresponds to the epoch of peak star formation from our own galaxy millions of years ago. Um, now, the Small Magellanic Cloud is a fifth of what our galaxy is, so that actually is even further back and is a good probe for primordial galaxies at higher redshifts and the longer look-back time. Wow, so it's a bit like looking back without having to look too far away yeah but the problem is these galaxies are a lot smaller so that's actually what's that's one of the good reasons they've had less generations of star forming going on which is why they're lower metallicity but they don't have the same spiral structure their own galaxy so different things may be coming into play as well but we do try and kind of use it as a proxy for our own galaxy but it's not ideal okay and do your results help to inform the sort of models of how stars evolve, or particularly how galaxies evolve? It's very important for the, uh, the ratio of the different composition being put into interstellar medium. So not only does the change in the oxygen which just occur, 
But actually, the, the ratio of carbon stars, which are dominated by carbonaceous dust, so these are now, instead of stars surrounded by tiny particles of sand, these are stars surrounded by tiny particles of soot. Um, and they have actually a very rich chemistry because um, carbon is actually able to form many, many more different uh, dust species compared to um, silicates, which have a very nice, um, small amount of chemical bonding that can go on. And actually, the ratio between the carbon stars to the oxygen-rich stars depends on the metallicity of the galaxy. So as you go to low metallicities, actually, the number of carbon stars increases compared to the oxygen-rich stars. So, in fact, the carbon dust is two and a half times more abundant than the oxygen-rich dust, despite all the stars starting off initially as oxygen-rich. And is that something that then decreases as we get into our own galaxies, the ratio? So you probably see more oxygen stars. It's a very complicated relationship between um, the size of the star and the the metallicity of the galaxy. But actually, if you think about that in terms of what we're made of, we're carbon-based life forms. And carbon stars the carbon is being produced in them and that's being inputted into the interstellar medium. So actually the ratio between silicates and carbon can be interested in what abundances we see on Earth. Wow. During your PhD, you also actually observed some stars for the first time, didn't you? No one had actually seen these particular stars before. So are the ones you're looking at, are they quite rare? Is it quite a brief phase of a star when it's in this um, sort of aged, dusty phase? This is actually in an entirely different galaxy to all of my, my favourite ones, the Magellanic Clouds. This is actually in a galaxy called M32, which is a satellite galaxy of the Andromeda, M31. One of the best ways to work out what dust is being inputted into the stellar medium is to measure every single star in this galaxy and work out what type of object it is. Is it a baby star, is it a young stellar object? Is it an evolved star that's producing the dust? And you need to measure all of this first before you can know what the chemistry is. So I wanted to look at a different type of galaxy, an elliptical galaxy, which M32 is. I used the Spitzer Space Telescope to point towards M32. Spent a lot of time looking at it, because no one's ever really looked at this galaxy before in the infrared. So then we actually pick up the, the very dustiest objects And it turns out that a lot of these very dusty objects that no one's ever seen before, because in optical they're completely obscured, you can't see them, because the dust in optical light blocks all all the wavelengths out, so you actually have to go to the infrared to see them. So then I have this now very rich data set of very dusty objects that no one's ever seen. Uh, And then I'm trying to work out now exactly what they are and what is their chemical composition. Brilliant. And so maybe it's the last question. Did you name any of the stars? I'm still working on what to name them as. Um, <laughs> Do yeah. they get catalogue names to start with? They will get a catalogue name, but the initial part of the catalogue actually depends on me. So namings of stars are very interesting, especially um, stars in in different galaxies, because normally the different surveys come up with their names. Um, so actually, uh, there's some names like PMMR actually standard for the initials of the authors on the paper and then there's a number and a coordinate to assign it. So some people do that, other people give them a designation. So a lot of the SAGE does, it's got an SSID for instance. Um, so I'm working on the first bit, so yeah, I get to name them. Oh, brilliant. Well, that's kind of exciting just finding stars that no one's ever seen before, but also understanding actually what it is they're doing. So that's a great insight into astrochemistry and dust. And dust. Astro-mineralogy. Astro-mineralogy. And hereafter I'll refer to you as Libby Jones, Agents of Galactic Evolution.
I really like that title. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, he talks to Professor Carol Mundell about the transient explosive universe. I'm interviewing Professor Carol Mundell, who works at Liverpool John Moores University, and she was giving a colloquium here at Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics entitled, excitingly, The Transient Explosive Universe. So, uh, welcome. What's that all about, the transient explosive universe? So I should be clear that it's not the universe itself that is transient or exploding. That's a different topic altogether. Uh, my colloquium actually is about the objects in the universe, some of the most violent explosions in the universe called gamma-ray bursts. And these are powered by, we think, black holes um, that are formed either in the collapse of massive stars or the merger of two compact objects like neutron stars and black holes. And when the black hole is produced, there's an accretion disk and a relativistic jet, so an ultra-high-speed ejection of material. And when those jets of material point towards the Earth, we actually see a very bright flash of gamma rays. Wow. So you began by telling us a bit about the history of these gamma ray bursts. It seems like they're still, in some ways, not that well understood. But when they were first discovered, you were saying they were a complete mystery. That's right. They were discovered by the U.S. military satellites, Vela satellites, that were monitoring the Earth, looking for violations of the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in the late 60s, early 70s. And they said that the scientists who were in charge of the, the satellites actually found these flashes of high-energy gamma rays in their detectors. And I imagine for a short period of time there was some excitement or fear that somebody had violated the, the Test Ban Treaties. But very quickly they realised that these signals were actually extraterrestrial and they were coming from the sky. Now, at that time, the origin of these flashes were it was a complete mystery. And one of the reasons for that was that because the accuracy with which they could pinpoint where these flashes were coming from was very, very poor. So it wasn't possible to train other telescopes onto the locations of these flashes. And in some ways, this was why the field languished for many decades. Around the same time, pulsars were discovered, quasars were discovered. So these are fields that we, we know and love now, and they had 40 years worth, 50 years worth of research development. Gamma ray bursts, as they were termed at the time, um, really did languish um, a little bit until the early 90s when the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory was launched and that had a gamma ray detector that was catching many of these flashes and it showed that the flashes were coming from random positions on the sky. So the whole sky, it was isotropic, there was no preferred direction for, for these gamma ray flashes, they were not coming from the, the plane of our own Milky Way galaxy. And in fact, at that time, the debate really raged between whether they were very bright because they were nearby, so they were in the halo of our own Milky Way, or whether they were vast, luminous explosions at the edges of the universe. And in fact, scientists really began to think, well, maybe they're objects in our own Milky Way. And then... Sometime later, um, basically up, up into the 1990s, um, a Dutch-Italian satellite, Beppo-Sachs, was launched. And this satellite really began to revolutionise the field because this provided the first X-ray detection, so-called afterglow, the dying embers of that gamma-ray burst. And that was important because the X-ray afterglow was identified to a very accurate uh, localization, so to arc-second precision. And really from then, the detection of that X-ray afterglow allowed optical astronomers to point their optical telescopes and find the corresponding optical transient counterpart to the gamma-ray burst. That then allowed us to measure a redshift, which gave us a distance. And for the first time, it was then realized that these are cosmological objects and they're the most instantaneously luminous objects in the universe. So you get the redshift from 
a, a, a spectrum, is it? That... That's right. So once you find the optical transient, so a point source um, in your optical image that doesn't correspond to any known star, um, you then take a spectrum of that light and you can you can identify absorption lines, so where pieces of the, the light are missing, if you like, and they've been absorbed by material along the line of sight. And that gives you um, the, the, the identification of the redshift or the position um, along the line of sight, if you like, of where that object is rather than just the position on the, the sky. So you're given a hint there by talking about various space observatories that these things were pretty difficult to detect. What is it about them that makes them so hard to detect? I mean, clearly you couldn't just have had a look with a normal sort of telescope and expect to, to pick up very much. What, what makes them different to the normal sorts of things that are looked at in astronomy, galaxies and stars and so on? So they're completely unpredictable. I mean, we have no idea when one will go off and where it will go off. And so that unpredictability has really driven much of the technology development in the last 10 years. In particular, NASA launched um, a small mid-ex mission called, called SWIFT, which is a dedicated gamma-ray burst satellite. And it combined all of the technology of the Compton Gamma-ray Observatory and BEPO-SACS into one small rapid response satellite. So it has a gamma-ray detector, and when it finds and localizes a gamma-ray burst, it then sends that position both to the ground so that we can use our optical telescopes to look for the optical light. And it also tells its own X-ray telescope and its own ultraviolet optical telescope on board to slew very quickly to that gamma-ray position. And this really opened up the era of rapid follow-up. And so we're now able to find these gamma-ray bursts in real time. We have accurate localizations, and then we can use our telescopes both in space and on the ground to find the light from them and then really use that light and the information encoded in that light to understand the physics of these Objects. And these gamma rays are very high frequency light essentially, so is it the case that most of that doesn't get through our atmosphere and That's you go right. into space and you, you can see a lot more? Exactly. I mean, fortunately for us, um, if the gamma rays did reach the, the surface of the Earth, we'd all be toasted. <laughs> and so the Earth's atmosphere protects us from high energy rays, gamma rays, x-rays. I mean, obviously, you may have had an x-ray in a hospital. Um, you'll have a, a lead plate that protects your organs from those, those high energy um, waves. The gamma rays are much higher energy than the X-rays, higher again. How and much energy is each sort of photon, each little packet of so, gamma So these, these energies, we, we measure them in, in electron volts, and they're giga electron volts, so you know billion electron volts of energy um, in one of these photons. So they're some of the highest energy photons you can detect. Um, they're quite challenging to detect, but of course SWIFT has this nice technology, a so-called coded mask array, that allows the, the detection um, of these gamma rays, and also some identification of their, their localization. You can't focus them in the same way that you would an optical photon. So these are the very highest energy um, particle photons of light that we, we detect. The X-rays, again, are a little bit less energetic, um, and then we come right down into the optical and the radio. And are gamma-ray observatories looking out everywhere all the time? Is that how they capture these things when they go off? So SWIFT can see some fraction of the sky. It can't see all of the sky at the same time. Um, it's very difficult to, to design something that can see the whole of the sky and can also give you accurate localization. We also have the Fermi satellite, which is constantly scanning the sky and trying to pick up gamma-ray bursts. So with the two missions together, um, SWIFT detects about 100 GRBs a year and Fermi detects about 200 gamma-ray bursts a year. But it's just the SWIFT mission that gives us the real-time accurate positions so that we can, we can follow those up. But Fermi, of course, course is revolutionizing the study of the high energy gamma rays from these gamma ray bursts. So clearly from what you said the follow-up is important um, you're not just looking at those gamma rays and that's it 
and that sort of ties into the work that you were talking about that you do at Liverpool John Moores. So in, how do you follow up the gamma ray bursts now? So round about the same time as the SWIFT satellite was being developed, we were building a new kind of optical telescope. It's termed the Liverpool Telescope. It's not in Liverpool. <laughs> it's on the mountain top in the Canary Island of La Palma. And this is the world's fully autonomous robotic optical telescope. It's two metres um, in diameter. It's mirror, so it's the largest of its kind. Um, it slews very quickly, about two degrees a second, so it can get to any position in the sky when we trigger it, when we catch an alert from the, the gamma ray burst satellite. That goes immediately immediately into the back of the telescope. The without telescope, anybody? Without any human intervention whatsoever. We have intelligent software, because, and which we developed over many years because we knew that we're not going to be very intelligent in the middle of the night. <laughs> and what actually happens is the satellite sends a signal down to the telescope and it also sends a signal to our mobile phones. So our mobile phone buzzes and we wake up and we realise that as we're rubbing our eyes and <laughs> gathering our wits, the telescope's already swung into action. It's stopped doing cleanly what it's doing and it slews immediately to the position where the gamma ray burst is. And when we first started to develop this program we were really taking photographs so we were taking images of the location of where the gamma ray burst should be and we developed quite a lot of intelligent software to try to figure out whether we'd found an optical transient in these photographs the way we do this is we take three quick images in a, in a red filter and we extract all of the objects in the in the field so we find all the stars we measure their brightnesses and their positions and we then compare those with catalogues of stars and we say yep we know that one we know that one if we see something that is not in the catalogue, we then put that in, a, cat in a, a list of candidates and we say, right, that's a new source. The next image is then treated exactly in the same way and we then stick all our other candidates and we actually start to build up light curves of things that we think might be candidates to the optical, the optical afterglow of the, the gamma ray burst. We do this for three images and we do this very quickly and we also compare the brightnesses of the new objects that we found to see if any of them are fading. And in that way, we're very efficient at finding optical counterparts to gamma ray bursts in real time. What we've since done is we've realised that actually by by looking at how the light fades in the optical and also how its colour changes, that gives us a lot of physical information about the material and how it's being ejected in the explosion. But the one thing that it couldn't do was actually tell us about the magnetic fields. And we think, theoretically, magnetic fields are the key to understanding these huge explosions. And all of the predictions in the, from the theories in terms of how the light faded were basically all the same. We couldn't distinguish between the models. And the one piece of observational um, information, if you like, or the new dimension we needed to open up was to measure the polarisation of the light. And so for that we developed a new novel type kind of polarimeter um, which allows us to measure the degree of polarisation and its angle on the sky of the fading optical light in real time. So you're looking at the direction of the the wave, essentially, as it comes in. I don't mean the direction it's propagating, but the direction that it's it's waving in, if you like. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's if you can think, you can think of an analogy. I mean, sunlight is not polarized, but if sunlight actually bounces off a shiny surface, so if it bounces off a lake, or you might think in terms of a wet road. If you're driving along and there's a wet road and the sun's shining from it, the glare that you get is actually polarized. And so the way you block that polarized glare out, you might have Polaroid sunglasses. And if they are, if you think of them almost being like slats that would allow the light to come through or to block it, those slats are aligned 90 degrees to the preferred plane of vibration of that polarized light, you'll block out the light. What our polar emitter does is we have one of those, if you think of the, the piece of Polaroid in your sunglasses, and we spin that eight times a second, and we measure how much of the light comes through as a function of angle around the 360 degrees. By doing that, we can actually measure um, the amount of polarisation and the preferred angle. Wow. So 
you were talking about the different types of gamma ray bursts that you see, and you were talking about short and long bursts. So if we imagine this thing is emitting all across the electromagnetic spectrum, how long does it take to, to do its emission at each sort of frequency, if you like? So the, the distinction between short and long bursts came really observationally. So before we knew what gamma ray bursts were, and we were looking with the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, people were studying how long the, the gamma ray flashes lasted and what kind of structure their the light curves had. Did they have one flash? Did they have two flashes? How, how short and how long were these flashes? And when you plot the length of time the gamma ray flash lasts against how hard the spectrum is. So what this means is we measure how much energy comes out in a high energy band and how much energy comes out at a slightly lower energy. And we just take a ratio between those two, two numbers. And that tells us how, as I say, how, how energetic the burst is. So when we plot energy of the burst against time, we found that there were two distinct populations. There were the so-called short energetic bursts and there were so-called longer, softer, less energetic bursts. And the division seemed to be around about two seconds. So the long gamma ray bursts are defined to last longer than two seconds. Now we know they can last for anything up to about 10,000 seconds, which is, is a huge amount of time for that amount of energy to be produced. This is in the observer's frame. Um, the short bursts are defined to be less than two seconds, and some of them can be just can be gone in tens of milliseconds. And the difference we think, and this is something that you know we're obviously still investigating, but is a, a working hypothesis, is that the long gamma ray bursts are produced in the core collapse of a massive star. And we have some good evidence for that, because the small number of long bursts that have been found under a redshift of about half, we've been able to look at their light, and once the light from the gamma ray burst has faded away, after about 10 or 15 days, the light brightens a little bit. There's a little bump or a hump in the, the light curve. And when you take a spectrum of that light, it looks like a supernova. So we then get, we got a direct connection between a gamma ray burst and a supernova. Is it a supernova that you say it's the core collapse or is it, is that a supernova where we can just see the gamma rays or is it a different kind of phenomenon? Well, we think it's both. All supernovae don't produce gamma ray bursts, but we think that long gamma ray bursts are accompanied by a supernova explosion. The light from the supernova Obviously, the peak of that light is maybe 10, 20, 30 days after the explosion. That's the synthesis of nickel and other elements. The gamma ray burst itself, the, the very bright light from the jet, we see at very early time. And once that has faded away, we're then able, because we have the contrast then, to be able to see both the host galaxy it lives in and the supernova component. And it was really measuring the spectrum of that light and finding that it had all the features of a slightly obscure supernova type 1bc that allowed us to directly connect massive star collapse with gamma ray bursts. The short gamma ray bursts are very different. The idea for those is that they're the, the merger of two compact objects, so a neutron star with a black hole or two black holes. And they have much shorter flashes of gamma rays, and they're much fainter in the optical, and they're actually much more challenging to find. So that, again, is still an area where we're working very hard to understand. We think that they're important because they may produce gravitational waves. Are they rarer than the, the longer bursts? And they are rarer in the sense of how we detect them because the SWIFT satellite is very sensitive to the long gamma ray bursts because of the way their different energy bands detect the, the gamma rays. The, soft, the shorter bursts are harder and therefore are much more challenging to detect with SWIFT and so there are many fewer of those that have been detected with SWIFT. But we know from previous studies with the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory that there, there should be more short bursts than SWIFT sees. And in fact, the Fermi satellite is finding many more of those short bursts. The real challenge still remains in finding the short bursts and delivering an accurate localization. So you talked about the redshift being up to about a half. So that 
would mean looking back up to about five billion years into the into the universe's past. So well, they're obviously incredibly incredibly bright. And then well, you talked about beaming as well. So how, how do those two things? So redshift of a half is uh, we class as the nearby ones. Um, oh, I see. <laughs> the highest redshift gamma ray burst that has been spectroscopically confirmed is at redshift of 8.2, when the universe was only 600,000 years old. Um, we also have one that's been photometrically identified, so it doesn't have a spectrum, but just has, has colour information out to a redshift of 9.4. So they are also the most distant objects in the universe. So you're right, they're incredibly luminous, very, very bright. So we're interested in them both in terms of the physics of the objects themselves, because they're extremes in every way, strong gravity, large magnetic fields, very high ejection speeds. But they also act as remarkable beacons, and they shine across the entire universe. So if you find a burst at redshift of 8.2, it illuminates all of that material and a pencil beam along the line of sight from 600,000 years ago to now. And so they're, they're actually remarkable lighthouses, really, for the distant universe. And why do they beam? Do we have any idea? So again, I think this back, goes back to the magnetic fields. And um, we think the magnetic fields are fundamental to helping to focus and collimate um, and accelerate the material in a, in a small pencil beam, if you like. The so-called fireball model of gamma ray bursts um, describes that because the expansion is so quick, I mean, the material is moving close to the speed of light itself, we then have effects that are caused by special relativity where the light is beamed or focused into a, a narrow opening angle. And obviously, when that beam points towards the Earth, we then see it as a gamma ray burst. Wow. And then when you spoke about gravitational waves as well being produced, does that mean that you could sync up with gravitational wave detectors and maybe there could be a burst that would trigger both things? That's what we're hoping very much to do as the gravitational wave detectors come online in the next few years um, and towards 2018 and ultimately 2022. Obviously, that's you know the, the big holy grail in, in that area is to find a gravitational wave. Again, it's like gamma ray burst science was in the 1960s and 70s. We won't have a very good accurate localization. And so the big challenge then is to search the large patch of sky from which we think we've detected the gravitational wave and try to associate that with a particular source and that that really is a challenge because we're looking across vast areas of the sky there are lots of optical sources within a particular patch that the gravitational wave might be identified from and so the, the real challenge for us is to try to figure out where the needle in that haystack is mm. and then when you talked about was it the redshift of, of sort of eight or even nine and you were saying that's only hundreds of thousands of years after the big bang is that enough time for something so energetic to develop that then causes a gamma ray burst. I sort of imagined a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, well, there are atoms, but not much else. Well, we, we think there are stars, obviously. The stars, you know, the first generation of population three stars lit the universe up. Obviously, these stars that produce the gamma ray burst, we think, are 200 to 300 solar masses. So these massive wow. stars, they live fast, they they die hard. Mm. Um, you know, we, do, we still don't yet know whether population three stars can produce a gamma ray burst. But when the redshift 8.2 burst was discovered, when you actually compare compare the gamma ray light curves, the gamma ray properties of the small number of gamma ray bursts that we found in a redshift above six, they all look remarkably similar. So the physics of producing those high-speed jets 
is obviously common right out to at least 600,000 years after the Big Bang. And the real question then is what are the physics of the population three stars, that first generation of stars that lit up the universe? But we know that we have supermassive black holes at the centres of all bulge-dominated galaxies in the universe. So the idea is that there should have been some seed black holes in the early universe that then would have grown to produce today's supermassive black holes. So it may be that gamma-ray bursts are the key for that too. And the population three stars then, they're the ones that are sort of almost entirely hydrogen and helium. And do we think theoretically they can become extremely massive and therefore burn out very, very quickly? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the ideas behind them. And the question is whether they would be able to produce all of the features that we see in a gamma-ray burst. And would that sort of link together perhaps the reasons why black holes in the centres of galaxies tend to grow concordantly with the the growth of the galaxies themselves? Well, again, I mean, theoretically, you have to have a seed black hole. Um, the question really is, what is the mass spectrum of those seed black holes? How massive do they have to be? Are you talking a few solar masses? Do they have to be a 100? Do they have to be a 1,000 times the mass of our sun? And so there are various theories that describe how these seed black holes then grow into supermassive black holes. But I think the jury's still out on what produces the seeds in the first place. And could we expect any gamma-ray burst to happen really close to us? Have you been able to ascertain a rate at which they might be happening? So it depends how nearby, when we talk about how... uh, whether a gamma-ray burst could happen in the local universe. Until now, we've thought it's very unlikely that one could happen in our own Milky Way um, because there's a, a... tendency to see gamma-ray bursts, long gamma-ray bursts, happening in small dwarf galaxies with normal star formation regions, but that actually have low metallicity. So the idea is that in order to, to have these massive stars, probably wolf rayet stars that spin at a high speed before they collapse, that they would actually be low metallicity objects. And the idea for the Milky Way is that the metallicity is it's, a, it's an enriched galaxy, so the metallicity is probably too high to produce a gamma-ray burst. So I think we're hopefully safe yeah, from be being... <laughs> turned into crisps but I think in terms of thinking about up to redshift 10 for gamma ray burst scientists of course under redshift of 1 is considered to be relatively local and until recently any of the gamma ray bursts that we found that we were studying for associated supernova and I mentioned those earlier they were all sub-energetic events so typical energies of a gamma ray burst isotropic equivalent gamma ray energy of up to 10 to the 54 ergs maybe 10 to the 51 when you try to focus it into a beam. The sub-energetic ones were around about 10 to the 48, 10 to the 47. So sub-energetic explosions. Um, Recently, in fact, last year, last April, we found a gamma-ray burst at a redshift of only 0.3, and this looked like a classical long gamma-ray burst. It was the highest gamma-ray fluence ever detected. It looked very classically like a very bright optical afterglow. Everything pointed to the fact that it was a normal long gamma-ray burst. So this is the closest long gamma-ray burst that we've yet discovered. So, you know, I think we're having to revise our ideas of the populations of long gamma-ray bursts and their redshift distributions. So when you were looking into the future on your talk, then it seemed as though there would be an increasing number of observatories and instruments that were designed to pick things up quickly or what you call the the time domain universe so not just looking at something that's there all the time but finding things that come and go so how's that going to work in the future i mean you've already told us about the kind of alerts that you get the automatic uh, movement of the liverpool telescope and in perhaps a decade there's going to be the the large synoptic survey telescope which is going to aim to be surveying the sky sort of every 
every couple of weeks. So will those things all link together into a sort of new kind of uh, observatory? Yeah, I think the the future for time domain astronomy is, is, is very exciting. Until recently, obviously, people who studied gamma ray bursts were, although it was a very active international community, a relatively niche subject. Um, you needed special technology to catch these flashes. Obviously, people who study supernovae have always been interested. Amateur astronomers have always been very good at finding new transient sources like novae or supernovae on the sky. Professional astronomers have started to develop those sorts of facilities. For example, the Palomar Transient Factory, the Caltech lead, um, that's a very good supernova machine for finding new kinds of supernovae and large numbers of supernovae. Um, I think in the next few years, and um, you know, the next decade, the whole area of transient astronomy will, well, to use a euphemism, will explode. <laughs> um, we will have the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which will give us something like two million transient alerts a night. I and hope you'll so, get a text message for each one of those. <laughs> well, I'm hoping not. I'm going to have to design some software that will filter many of those out and decide literally what is important scientifically um, for me to, for me to follow up with my facilities. The Gaia satellite launched last year in December. Um, that should start to produce transient alerts uh, in the autumn, and um, obviously we'll be following those up. We also have this new discovery of radio sources, the so-called fast radio bursts, which are millisecond flashes of radio emission from the sky. Nobody again knows what they are. The origin of these fast radio bursts is completely unknown. They don't tie with the gamma ray bursts at all, or, or is that not something that we can tell yet? Um, not yet. There hasn't been a, a coincidence. There certainly hasn't been one that has been found at any other wavelength. Um, they're very challenging to follow up because obviously they're gone in a few milliseconds. Um, but there are many attempts now. I mean, radio astronomers are beginning to survey the sky seriously to look for these things. There are five known to date. Um, and obviously my team are very interested in following these up in the optical. We have the Liverpool telescope. We also have a copy of the Liverpool Telescope in Hawaii and Australia, the Falks Telescopes. And these are now owned by Las Cumbres Observatory in uh, California. And they have also built a network of nine one-meter telescopes. So this is called the Las Cumbres Observatory Global Telescope Network. Um, so my team will be using that network in conjunction with the Liverpool Telescope to follow up fast radio bursts, gamma ray bursts, and any of the transient alerts that we will get from Gaia, which might signal um, a star being disrupted around a supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy for example. So I think it's a, it's a very exciting time that we're entering. We have developed some expertise, obviously, in following gamma ray bursts up, and we're now starting to think in a much bigger global way as to how to follow up all these different kind of new alerts that we get, and also to look for new ones. Obviously, the LSST and um, the Liverpool Telescope itself has little wide-field cameras bolted to the outside of the telescope that we're using as a pilot project or pathfinder for, for LSST. So we're actually trying to actually characterise the transient sky and say, well, how does the, the sky change in a night? How many objects do change and how do they change their brightness and what's the nature of them? And we have something like 900 million observations of 21 million objects so far just <laughs> in our database, just for free. So. Wow. <laughs> it's maybe worth thinking about just how extreme these events are that you're, you're talking about seeing. I mean, it's sort of like science fiction, really. You're talking about things like stars actually being sucked wholesale into black holes. Yeah, so once material falls over the event horizon, if the event horizon exists, then obviously that material is lost. Any information about the material is lost, light can't escape from the event horizon of a black hole. The material that we're thinking about is stuff that gets close to the black hole, and obviously the tidal forces then become very large, um, potentially producing a flare from this material. And we actually know that this can happen because there's a gas cloud that's being 
disrupted and potentially torn apart by the black hole at the centre of our own Milky Way. And there are telescopes all across the world and satellites above the Earth that are staring at the centre of our own galaxy, looking and waiting for this kind of flare that might be produced when this gas cloud is disrupted over about the next nine to ten months. Wow. Well, maybe a last thing um, I thought I might ask you about the instruments. You already talked about them a little bit, um, like the, the polarimeter on the Liverpool telescope. So this was, I don't know if this is a Beatles reference, I guess it is, it was called Ringo. Is that a Liverpool connection? Um, I would love to claim that the name of Ringo came to us in a moment of inspiration about the Beatles. Um, unfortunately, it didn't. It was actually because the first generation of our Ringo detector produced rings. We actually glued our polarizer to a deviating prism and we spun it at 550 revs per minute. And as the light comes through that optical system, it's literally spread out in a ring. And that ring is then in, it recorded onto the CCD. So all of our images consisted of rings instead of spots. So star was spread out as a ring, the GRB afterglow was spread out as a ring. And if the light was polarized, then that ring would have a lumpy appearance. It would have two bright spots and two dim spots. And by measuring the profile of the light around that ring, we'd be able to extract the information on the polarization. Since then, we've upgraded Ringo into Ringo 2 where we took the deviating prism away and we just spin the Polaroid. This time we slowed it down so it only spun eight times a second but we put a new kind of CCD detector on the back so-called electron multiplying CCD which reads out very quickly and then it has no readout noise so we're able to take an image every eighth of a second and then we can stack those images and process them in a way that maximizes the signal and allows us to reconstruct that polarization signal that we used to have for Ringo. Wow. We now have Ringo 3, which is a new generation where we now have, it's equivalent to three Ringo 2s looking in three different colors. So we have simultaneous multicolor photographs as well as three bands measuring polarization. And that's all helping you to try and determine more about the physics of the objects. Then. That's right. I mean, the ultimate goal is to try to connect the physical properties of the, the, the exploding material, the expanding material that's being shocked as it travels out with the structure of the magnetic field. And there's no other way to probe that magnetic field because these things are so far away, they'll always look like point sources. So we won't have beautiful images of jets. We actually have to try to disentangle the physical geometry and the structure of the magnetic fields from the temporal behavior of that polarized light and how it changes with colour. And are they quite novel instruments that you're using or are you sort of putting together other ideas that have never been used for this purpose before? So these are completely novel. Um, they're actually the world's only rapid response polarimeters. I mean, other people are designing and developing things um, at the moment, but when Ringo first went on Skype, it was the only way of actually doing something like this because we didn't beforehand know what the property of the light would be. And traditional polarimeters work by measuring the intensity of the light at, light at a particular angle and then a little bit later measuring the intensity of the light at a different angle and comparing how that changes. Now that's fine when the brightness of the light is constant and any change in brightness is as a function of angle is caused by polarization. But of course for our gamma ray bursts we didn't know whether the, what we knew the light would be fading and we don't didn't know a priori whether the polarization would be changing too. So we had to have an instrument that would do that very very quickly uh, rather than waiting for a few minutes and you know measuring the light at a different angle. And so we we had to use quite a novel design. This was based on a small stellar polarimeter that Dave Clark and Glasgow University of Glasgow had first postulated in the literature. So we went and had a chat with him and figured out how to build his design um, and make it into a professional instrument for a professional telescope. That's great. Well, it sounds like there's a lot ahead for the whole transient field. And I assume 
the more data there is, the more work it's going to give to theoretical physicists to try and understand what's going on in these systems. Indeed, we're already, I think, pushing theorists to think a little bit differently. Um, in December, we published a paper in Nature with the first measurement of the evolution of polarisation as a function of time. Previously, all the measurements had been single shot, so we could tell you it's polarised or it's not polarised. And we made the first measurement of the evolution of polarisation. We found incredibly high polarisation. It began at about 30% and declined to 16% over about 10 minutes. The position angle was relatively constant. I mean, it didn't change only changed by a maximum of 15 degrees over those 10 minutes. So that already ruled out a number of uh, favourite theories. And so hopefully we're, we're, we're pushing the boundaries of the theorists and helping them to, to think differently about their models. Fabulous. Well, thank you very, very much for giving us this interview. Thanks again for both of those interviews, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So, my odd and end this time around concerns a topic that we like to talk about quite a bit in the broadcast, and that would be exoplanets. But the exciting thing this time is that astronomers believe they may have spotted a planet, an exoplanet, with its own moon. So, an exomoon. And uh, this is the first time that this would have uh, actually happened. So, it's been found by a study lent by the uh, Microlensing Observations in Astrophysics, or MOA, project, uh, which is a Japan, New Zealand and USA collaboration. And they use a technique called gravitational microlensing to detect exoplanets. So the way gravitational microlensing works is that when you have two stars that align, so if a foreground star passes uh, between us and a more distant star, the closer star acts a bit like a magnifying glass and, and essentially brightens up and focuses the light from the background star. So it, it lenses that light. And astronomers can, can measure this brightening, this lensing effect. And if that foreground star is also being orbited by a planet, then that can be detected as well. And so you can get a detection of an exoplanet through the, the so-called microlensing effect. In this situation, what the astronomers found is that the, the system that's doing the lensing may, in fact, instead of being a star and a planet, could be a planet and its own moon they found a system that, according to their analysis, could either be a small faint star, uh, which is being circled by a planet, which is about 18 Earth matters, or it could be a planet that's slightly more massive than Jupiter, being orbited by a moon that weighs a little bit less than, than the Earth. Unfortunately, the astronomers actually have no way of distinguishing between these two scenarios that their analysis threw up, that, which is called um, there's a degeneracy in the analysis uh, in, in scientific terms. What happens in this case, and um, what the, they've said in the paper that uh, they've released is that you apply the Occam's razor principle and you take what would be the most likely scenario, in this case, the star being orbited by a planet. And what it actually depends on is the distance between us and the lensing object. The way to, to determine which of the two scenarios is correct would be to measure the distance between us and the lensing object. If the object were closer to us, that would imply that the system is much smaller, so we'd be looking at a planet and its its moon going around it. If the lensing object is further away, then that implies that the object is much larger, so we would be talking about um, a distant star and its accompanying planet. Unfortunately, because gravitational microlensing is like a, is a, is a transient event, so we have to wait for a chance alignment between two objects to observe this microlensing event, the lensing object then pretty much disappears from view and is very difficult to detect afterwards. So 
there is no way of verifying it. But it does raise the possibility of future detections, which would be able to be confirmed by distance measurements of possible planets and exomoons. So it's a proof of principle in the sense that future exomoons could be detected. So it's a step in the right direction. So in this case, if it's a planet, is that a planet without a star, effectively? Or could it have a star, but that hasn't taken part in the lensing? Uh, I think in this case, it, it would probably have a star, but it hadn't taken part in the lensing, because that would be the much more common case than to find a planet without a star. My odd end is about something smacking into the Earth, or possibly smacking into the Earth anyway. Um, it's a story that comes about from a geology paper by some scientists who think they found evidence of a humongous, well, you could call it a meteoroid, but really asteroid-sized object that they think hit the Earth around three and a quarter billion years ago. And they are putting it at 37 kilometres wide, which, by comparison... The asteroid that's thought to have wiped out the dinosaurs is estimated to have been 10 kilometres wide. So this one was apparently really humongous and would have made an absolutely enormous crater, nearly 500 kilometres in diameter. And their evidence is an area in South Africa called the Barberton Greenstone Belt. And they say the rocks there show fractures consistent with the idea of a giant impact. Um, and they also have formations, particularly little things called spherules, which are little spherical lumps of rock. And apparently, when you get a really big impact uh, and it makes the surface of the Earth go molten underneath it, uh, you end up with this sort of molten rain, which then solidifies into little round rocks, and they're called spherules. It's worth saying that um, most of the Earth's crust is not three and a half billion years old. Uh, Africa is one of the few places where it is this old, I think, uh, as well as northern Canada and I think Australia. So it sounds like it's good luck that it just happened to hit in some part of the Earth's crust, which has managed to last so long. Well, it is a long time ago, and they say it's even possible that an impact like this actually could break up continents from one another. Now, I don't know if that's... Verifiable. Well, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit speculative, but that's the sort of angle they're taking. So it, it would be something that happened a long time ago during the Earth's formation. And towards the end, I think, of this period that may have occurred called the Late Heavy Bombardment, where lots of meteoroids and asteroids were supposed to have collided with the Earth. It's hard to find evidence of these kind of impacts. I guess that means that we can't say this definitely happened. It's just they found uh, evidence for it. And then they go on to talk about some of the exciting consequences of such an asteroid impact, like tsunamis kilometres deep, or kilometres high, if you prefer that one. Well, life on Earth at that point in time, if it even existed, because that's so long ago, uh, would have been unicellular, so it wouldn't have done... Uh, it, it wouldn't have wiped out Huge, well, maybe it would have still wiped out huge numbers of species, but it wouldn't have destroyed really large organisms of any sort. It's quite interesting because it's the, it's uh, probably one of the oldest kind of records of that we'll ever, we'll ever manage to get. Um, obviously, I think planet formation theories and things like that, where you expect a lot of objects to smash into the Earth at this early stage in its life because the solar system is just a little full of debris at that point. 
So, George, what have you got for us? Uh, well, there's something time? sort of related, again, uh, talking about uh, remnants of uh, formation in the solar system. In this case, it's talking about uh, stuff out in work cloud. There was an article in the journal Nature uh, back in March where it was announced that uh, there was another uh, dwarf planet discovered, which brings the total number of dwarf planets in the outer solar system to two. Um, the first one that was discovered was named Sedna. Uh, the second one, which was uh, this actually discovered by a couple of people that I went to uh, graduate school with, is named 2012 VP113. One of the two people that I went to graduate school with who discovered this thing, uh, Chad Trujillo, uh, has not only been like, uh, one of the leading people in terms of, uh, uh, working on the detection of these, uh, high, um, these objects in the orange solar system. He was one of the first people I saw who actually wrote code that could actually uh, search through uh, CCD images uh, looking for transient objects like this. He was also uh, one of the uh, first people to use image manipulation software to show what he would look like with uh, different hairstyles. And so when I got to the University of Hawaii, where we both studied, uh, there were lots of pictures up with, uh, showed what Chad would look like with male parent baldness. Uh, <laughs> I guess when you're searching for these objects, there's a lot of time, uh, you know, when you have to take a break from, from <laughs> looking for, for little dots. I think he was just sort of, um, uh, I guess he just had a little bit of an odd sense of humor, which also reflects the nickname that uh, they gave uh, 2012 VP113. They named it after the vice president of the United States, Joe Biden. <laughs> or Biden for short. <laughs> so the interesting thing about this uh, discovery by uh, both Chad Trujillo and uh, Scott Shepard, who I should also mention, is that it is, uh, as I said, the second dwarf planet discovered in the outer solar system. It does not have an orbit with as extreme uh, an eccentricity as Sedna. Uh, so Sedna goes out to uh, about 1,000 AU away from the sun. Biden, we'll call it Biden, uh, only goes about 450 AU from the sun. So it's not as eccentric. But still, it's rather interesting that there are at least two of these objects which are now identified in the outer solar system. Chad and Scott hypothesized there may be more and that these may be just the first two that we've been lucky enough to actually identify. What's particularly surprising about finding these objects is that they're relatively massive uh, compared to other things in the outer solar system, and they uh, aren't gravitationally... Now, one of the interesting things uh, about both Sedna and Biden is that uh, they're both gravitationally bound and seem to be well bound to orbits around the sun. They orbit in the Oort cloud, which uh, contains a bunch of uh, proto-cometary bodies, which occasionally uh, get uh, 
perturbed by other stars uh, into the solar system. And so they look like really long period comets with orbital periods of hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, finding two dwarf planets orbiting in the Oort cloud, even if it's the inner Oort cloud, still orbiting within the Oort cloud in well gravitationally bound orbits is kind of surprising. And it, nobody is really clear about how you can actually get these planets into orbit uh, like this in... Um, so could they have been dragged there by the larger planets? You mean uh, ejected from the inner solar system by Jupiter, or, well, presumably Jupiter, because it's the biggest and meanest of the gas giants. I guess so, though I heard a thing called the migration of Neptune, which was thought to attract some of the Kuiper Belt objects. These were well outside the Kuiper Belt, so it's not clear that they could have been ejected that nicely by uh, Neptune. Neither of them get much closer than uh, about 76 AU. Wow, 76 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So yes. these are pretty far out. Yes, and they're cold, and they're icy. <laughs> so can I just be a little bit pedantic for a minute as well? Okay. Um, this is really pedantic, but I think that um, a dwarf planet is only a dwarf planet when the International Astronomical Union actually says it is. So although lots of the stories have said it's a new dwarf planet and things like that, it has to get at some point formally brought into the family of dwarf planets. And I think that goes for Sedna as well. Even though it's almost certainly spherical in shape, it hasn't actually yet been officially called a dwarf planet. I think there's only five that make it into the category. I think that's a fair point. Uh, one of the ways that I tend to approach uh, these types of discussions is to bypass the entire semantics issue of, oh, it's a planet, oh, it's a dwarf planet, oh, it's some sort of mutant snowball, I guess. <laughs> and, and instead, uh, just redefine the discussion in terms of what the objects actually are. So what we can say is that Sedna and Biden are dynamically different from all of the other objects that have been discovered in the solar system so far. Uh, they are... Uh, relatively massive objects. They're about the size of Pluto, but they orbit at much greater distances than the Kuiper Belt. This makes them distinct from the inner rocky planets. It makes them distinct from the other gaseous planets. It makes them distinct from all of the stuff, including Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. It makes them distinct from the asteroids and even the Chiron-type objects. I think it's really exciting that we're peering into these dark, very distant members of the solar system for the, for the first time, really. Or the second time in this case. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're going to go from, well, supposedly dwarf planets to a giant astronomer. And uh, your questions got put to Dr. Josans in this month's Ask an Astronomer. Our first question comes from Gerald Kalia, who asks, if light photons lack mass, why do they not escape from black holes? This is a very good question indeed. Um, now, what Galileo is supposed to have discovered is that... Um, the mass of something or the weight of something doesn't affect how fast it falls under gravity. Um, and what we now know is that, that that effect continues all the way down to mass zero. Um, that's really that's a bit surprising. You can sort of see intuitively why that's true, because if you um, uh, the bigger a thing is, the more um, gravity pulls it. 
but also the more gravity needs to pull it in order to make it move because it's bigger and it has more inertia. Um, so it's not too surprising that the different sizes of or different masses of things get uh, get falling at the same speed. Um, what is surprising is that on a technical level, why that's true. Um, there's no particular reason, and it's, indeed it's kind of theoretically a bit surprising, that the mass something has for gravity and the mass it has for inertia and motion are the same. There's no reason kind of a priori that those things should be the same. Um, for example, with the electric field um, or the magnetic field, things are pulled by a different amount depending on what their what their electric charge or the magnetic charge is. So it's a bit of a mystery, actually. It's a theoretical mystery about the universe, why that's true and why those things are ultimately true. So the ultimate answer to your question is we don't know. Um, but the proximate answer is um, because you don't need to have mass to be pulled by gravity. That's a really interesting situation. <laughs> is, yeah. yeah, that's kind of made my mind go a bit funny. <laughs> Moving on. Our next question, in fact, our next two questions are from Dennis Rockwell, who, first of all, asks, is there momentum transfer between dark and normal matter during a gravitational encounter like there is between two bodies of normal matter? The answer is yes, absolutely there is. Um, dark matter interacts under gravity exactly the same as normal matter, That's as, as far as we know. Um, and indeed, that seems to be the only way it interacts. It doesn't interact by the electromagnetic force that we, we, we normally we have. Um, and indeed, that's why we call it dark, because it doesn't have these electromagnetic interactions. Um, so the primary way it interacts is by gravity, just like ordinary matter. But we don't know, for example, whether there's other forces that affect it as well. Some candidates for dark matter are WIMPs, which stands for weakly interacting massive particles. And so those interact by the weak interaction as well. Um, so we, we know it does by the gravitational force. We know it doesn't by the electromagnetic force, but the other ones are up for grabs. How do we know that it doesn't interact by the EM force, the electromagnetic force? Just because it's dark. Um, so we, electromagnetic interactions involve the reflection of light or the emission of light or the absorption of light. And we've never detected that by dark matter, otherwise it wouldn't be dark. OK, cool. And his second question was that if there is such a transfer, would the loss of energy in a two-neutron star system that's generally presumed to produce gravity waves be accounted for by momentum transfer to dark matter? that's been flung out of the system's gravity well by these encounters? Um, interesting question again. Um, so, as I just said, um, dark matter doesn't interact electromagnetically, and, and electromagnetic interactions are the source of pressure in materials. Um, so that's electrons and protons bouncing off each other in a way that doesn't happen in dark matter. Um, and that means that... Um, you don't really get collapsed structures made of dark matter like stars. So when you've got a star, um, uh, it's made from a cloud of gas primordially, and that cloud of gas, in order to become a star and collapse to it, has to lose a huge amount of angular momentum. It's spinning around too fast to be able to um, collapse into a star. The only way it can lose that momentum to to to, form, to kind of undergo that collapse um, is by heating up and emitting that radiation, which takes the angular momentum away with it. And it, if it can't heat up under pressure, which it can't because it's got no electromagnetic interactions, it can't lose angular momentum, so it can't collapse. So the answer is we, we don't get dark matter objects that are as collapsed as stars and form these kind of tightly bound small objects, which would have enough momentum or, or sorry, enough uh, mass uh, and gravitational forces to do the kind of things that we need to do in a two neutron star system. So the answer is that you, we just don't have the dark matter that's as dense as it needs to be to um, mimic the gravitational wave effects that we're expecting there or that we're seeing there. Fantastic. Our last question comes from Rob Peck, who asks, surely the first stars formed after the Big Bang could have achieved thousands or even millions of solar masses with so much material floating around at that time. If they all spontaneously made black holes at their centres, could the supermassive black holes at the centres of galaxies be the remnants of the first stars? 
So there's a couple of different things to clarify here. Um, the first thing to say is that although the average matter density at, say, redshift 10, when supermassive black holes were believed to have formed, uh, was a thousand times greater than it is today, that's still way, way, way less than stellar mass densities or the mass density you need to make a black hole. It's still tiny compared to that. And the way I like to think of this is that if you took all the matter in the universe, in the whole universe, and squashed it down so it was the density of water, say, which isn't even a particularly dense thing. It's, it's pretty dense, but not super dense. All the matter in the universe at density of water would have a radius of about 10 light years. 10 light years? 10 light years. So it's you really know, you, tiny. It's <laughs> tiny, and that's because space is very, very empty. <laughs> so although um, you do have loads of matter floating around in this kind of high redshift universe, you really don't have enough to form stellar densities just by sort of hanging around as easily. And um, having said that, there are... Um, much larger in, in terms of solar masses stars existing at high redshifts. That's really to do with chemistry rather than to do with physics. That's just to do with what happens when stars have no metal in them because there's no metal in these early times. They can form much larger levels. And by metal, you mean kind of anything that's heavier than helium? Exactly. I mean astronomy metal, which means anything that's not hydrogen or helium, which is a little bit of abuse of, uh, of nomenclature that astronomers <laughs> like to do. Also, having said that, um, the supermassive black holes that we do see in the universe could indeed be remnants of this early population. And there are a couple of different models for how this could have worked exactly how we could get from these you know early high density population stars to the supermassive black holes we see today um in particular we know there are more quasars in the early universe and we think quasars are black holes with jets coming out of them so um we do expect there to be you know black holes forming early and in sort of larger numbers than we have today so it's it's entirely possible that the supermassive black holes are indeed remnants of these early populations yes cool that's really interesting stuff and if you have any astronomical questions that you want answering, then send them in via all the usual channels. Thanks for that, Joe. Now it's on to the feedback. And by post, I think uh, George is very excited because we have two postcards from uh, New Mexico Tech alumnus. Yes, uh, Sean Lynch, who graduated New Mexico Tech in 1985. Uh, sent us a couple of postcards uh, with pictures of New Mexico Tech as it appeared in 1985 <laughs> uh, and says more or less I found some old postcards from my days as a student at New Mexico Tech of the Jodcast Jodon uh, just to let uh, listeners know uh, I graduated from New Mexico Tech in 96 so it's uh, I really wanted to grab these postcards uh, Sean Lynch graduated in 85 uh, and uh, one of the things I remember about Mexico Tech was that there was a place in the sidewalk where somebody had etched in I survived death meal 85 and I do kind of wonder if Sean was one of those survivors <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the less said about that the better indeed um we don't have any email uh this month but there is i believe a nice message on facebook yes andrew horner on facebook said he's got rather behind with listening to jobcast for various reasons but caught up with the february editions whilst on a bike ride to jodrell bank and back and he says one or two more outings and i'll be up to date well jodrell bank is very popular with cyclists so all i can say is i hope that listening to the jobcast doesn't mean you're not paying attention on those country roads it must be great to listen to it whilst cycling right up to the gigantic Lovell telescope. So thanks for all the shares and likes on Facebook. On Twitter, there were a few fun conversations regarding our new presenters uh, from the April edition. Notably some mentions from Stuart Lowe, the Jodfather, who didn't seem too happy that his creation was being taken over by robots. 
But as I said at the intro, it's all back with the humans for now. Thanks to everyone else on Twitter for all the tweets, retweets, and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All I have to say is thank you to Dr. Libby Jones and Professor Carol Mundell for the interviews. The editors were Indy Leclerc and Mark Perver, and the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, Jog on! on.